and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 8. I'm Nick Dixon, and as ever, I'm joined by national treasure Toby Young as we go through the week's events from a skeptical angle. This week we ask, is Eddie Izzard a woman? Can a woman play a keyboard with her penis? And are the BBC impartial? Lol. But first, we have a new Prime Minister, and the great thing is we didn't even have to choose him ourselves. I remain totally objective, but Toby, what is your view on this grotesque betrayal and obvious coup? Well... I feel slightly put out that um, I voted for Liz Truss. So I'm a Conservative Party member and the Parliamentary Conservative Party made it clear that they would have preferred the members to vote for Rishi. But ultimately, it was down to us, the members, to choose whom we preferred from the two candidates they've delivered. And I, like many other members, chose Liz. Um, and the Parliamentary Party then decided they didn't like Liz. So they tossed her under a bus and um, just appointed Liz, it, it, Rishi Sunak seemingly without consulting us. So I do feel it does feel like a bit of a stitch up. You know, why bother to consult the members in the first place if you're going to ignore their preferences and install the candidate you want anyway? Um, and I imagine that um, they probably will change the internal electoral system after this because they can't repeat this and not expect to lose tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of members and when you tore up your membership did you do it in the just throw it into the toilet or a sort of fire bonfire outside or have you not torn it up toby and you're shamefully keeping it for now no i i i rather dramatically um i rather dramatically um cut up my credit card like conservative membership card only to discover I was paying my direct debit, so it made no difference at all. <laughs> so I'm still a member in spite of cutting up my card. So it's a, but it's a symbolic gesture. It's sort of a it, impotent fury. <laughs> <laughs> a- right. Anger, but signifying nothing. Yeah, you it's, you it's like, you're still a member. You know, it's a, once they've got you, you know, it's like being a member of the mafia, you know. You can't get out. Um, yeah, I'm torn because uh, I thought about I'd, I would be tearing up my membership if I had one. But the other part of me, as I said the other week, sort of wants to join now because it's a, at its lowest ever point. Get in at the bottom level when you know and you know buy low. But I think I, I think I would be tearing up my membership if I had one. Yeah, I, I mean it's. Um, I think I think the the reason I supported Boris is because I was concerned that. Um, uh, the pressure on Rishi to call a general election would be almost overwhelming. I mean, he's not under any constitutional obligation to do so, as we know, but he is under, I think, enormous political pressure to do so because he enjoys almost no legitimacy. Um, you know, um, the party that elected Boris Johnson, uh, well, the, 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 the party that won the general election three years ago with Boris as leader, um, you know, it was a different beast. Um, and seemingly, Rishi's agenda is quite different to what was in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto. Uh, well, we'll see. Maybe maybe I'm being a little too hasty there. And I hope that one of the things in the manifesto was a commitment to protecting academic freedom. And that's why under Boris, the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill was brought forward. And that's had its second reading in the Lords and is now at the, about to enter committee stage. Well, it was anyway, under the previous government, by which I mean Liz Truss's government, not Boris's government. Um, and uh, we'll see whether whether that continues. That's supposed to happen on October 31st. But I'd be very concerned if he abandons that particular piece of legislation. I'm. Um, he, he said some positive things about taking another look at the online safety bill during the um, penultimate, not the latest, leadership campaign. Um as did Liz Truss. And it looked as though Michelle Donnellan, as Culture Secretary, um, was going to, at the very least, strip out the legal but harmful clause from the online safety bill before bringing it back. Um, it now remains to be seen 
you know, at the time of recording whether Michelle Donnellan is still the culture secretary um, and whether she is or not, what Rishi will do about the online safety bill. Um, maybe he'll abandon it altogether, which would be a huge result. Uh, and I imagine he's going to, you know, m- most new leaders want to claw back as much parliamentary time as they can um, to clear, if they can, a, a, some space in the parliamentary timetable for their own bill so they can kind of make their own mark and maybe he'll just ditch the online safety bill altogether but that's probably too much to hope for um and if dominic robb comes back as um justice secretary which is one rumor um then perhaps his reforms to the um uh, human rights act um which i thought were on balance pretty good and would probably strengthen free speech perhaps they'll be resurrected they were scrapped by liz truss um so there are some you know some some reasons to be optimistic we'll know a bit more in the next 48 hours yeah well i suppose you're an optimist but also you're someone who's in the weeds of actual legislation i just look at it as a punter the broad picture and what i see is that they betrayed the country when they deposed boris because that's who the people voted for then they betrayed the members when they brought in rishi who'd been specifically rejected by the members and so this is where we are and, and there's this talk of a coup. There's arguments about globalist coup. I got into an argument last night about whether that's an anti-Semitic word. Mainly the argument was between Josh Howey and Simon Evans on our show. And of course, my point was we have to be able to talk about globalism. Globalism versus nationalism is the main opposition in probably world politics, certainly Western politics. We see it in Italy, United States, even here. And it, it, we have to be able to talk about that without everyone saying it's anti-Semitic. We certainly need, or we need another word because we mean the kind of Davos EU type belief in supranational organizations versus the nation, the bottom up community, beginning in the family, ending in the nation, as outlined by people like Roger Scruton. If we can't talk about that fundamental division, then we're in trouble. But that's, I've never said it's a globalist coup. I just said it's a Remainer coup. I mean, it's, it's a clear coup. You can, we can use a different word, but we see, we see what happened. The, the party chose Rishi. And what was quite interesting, they chose him even though he's going to lose. So there was a poll, I'm sure you saw. And it projected that Boris Johnson would lose by a majority of 26 Labour seats and Rishi, it would be 124 Labour seats. And yet they still went with Rishi. And that's fascinating. They're trying to save the party, but lose the election. And we all know, Toby, that Boris could pull back 26 seats. He'd do a little bit of Latin, some classical references. He'd say, like Icarus, I flew too close to the sun, but I've returned like Pegasus from, from the Caribbean or whatever. And it, 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 it'd get back those seats. He could have won this, couldn't he? Well, that's what I thought. That's where I thought he would have been a better choice than Rishi. Um, I think the choice is between, you know, um, in two years' time, it'll be between, you know, a Conservative government or a Labour government. And I think that um, it's likely to be a Labour government under Rishi. But I think we would have had a shot at um, a Conservative government under Boris. Um, but... Um, the way the markets reacted to Boris's, um, the possibility of Boris coming back um, was quite alarming. And I think that may have been why he struggled to get the, well, we don't know for a fact that he struggled to get the 102 MPs to sign his nomination papers um, that was required. Um, He claimed he did, but I suspect that if he had, he might have run. Um, So I suspect he probably didn't get um, the nominations, and that's certainly what Team Rishi are saying and have said since. Um, but um, one alarming fact, and one thing which may have contributed to the struggle he had to find people willing to sign his papers, um, is that guilt yields started to rise as soon as the possibility of his becoming prime minister again, you know, entered the fray. Um, and when 
I think Chris Heaton Harris, or maybe it was someone else, James Mugridge, I can't remember, um, claimed that uh, he'd now got the 102 nominations. I think guilt yields then rose again. Um, and uh, it's possible that, you know, had Boris been installed as leader, um, the markets would have effectively rejected him. Um, guilt yields would have risen to unsustainable levels, um, the pound would have sunk against the dollar, um, and in the interests of protecting the British economy, he would have then had to resign in favour of Rishi anyway, which would have been, you know, humiliation on humiliation. I mean, I think, you know, people say, well, uh, you know, isn't it outrageous that um, the uh, financial markets, um, by which I don't mean the Jews, by the way, um, the financial markets are um, dictating our political choices and effectively choosing our prime minister for us. Um, you know, is that just a, is that just a kind of um, fact that we have to live with or can we, can we kind of flout that? I mean, I think the, the difficulty is, I think um, as I, as I've, as I've said before, <laughs> and apologies to those who've heard me um, uh, on GB news and um, London calling saying the same thing. Um, but I think um, uh, we're in such a financial pickle because of all the money we paid people not to work and to stay at home uh, f- during the lockdowns. Um, you know, national debt's gone up, I think, from $1.8 trillion, um, in March 2020 to around $2.45 trillion today. Um, you know, uh, inflation's almost in double digits. We're in all likelihood heading into a recession. Um, and that means that the... Um, uh, financial markets are much more powerful than they would be if we were more solvent. So I don't think that um, the reason we find ourselves at the mercy of the um, financial markets is is because it was ever thus. And the idea of taking back control, Brexit was always an illusion. Um, I think uh, we could take back control and had taken back control up to a point. But given all this money, um, Boris and Rishi spunked up the wall um, during the pandemic, um, we've lost control and we now are at the beck and call of the money markets. And uh, and I think that is just, I think that is just the reality. And, you know, it didn't help that, um, uh, you know, the head of the Federal Reserve condemned the mini budget and the IMF condemned the mini budget and the Bank of England made disgruntled noises about it and the OBR and Treasury officials condemned it and so forth. Um, whether you know publicly or behind the scenes, all of that didn't help. But I don't think you can say that they were responsible for the reaction of the money markets to the mini budget and the rejection of Quasi and Liz and so forth and that whole kind of pro-growth agenda, as they called it. Um, I think ultimately we are where we are because of the cock-up over the way in which Boris and Rishi handled the pandemic. And that means that we have to, for the time being, do the bidding of the money markets. And they rejected Boris, they've rejected Liz, and Rishi seems like he's the only one acceptable to them. Interesting. I mean, of course, I agree the lockdowns are a disaster, though many would cite the money problems going back much further with quantitative easing, which even everyone from Liam Halligan to my deep state contacts uh, have actually criticised, you know, the QE is it's very contentious whether that was actually a good idea to do so much of that, you know, even beginning in, from sort of post-2008. But yeah, I mean, I think this point about the about the markets, it is a bit absurd, isn't it? I mean, I did this tweet, and I'm never sure if my tweets are any good, but then Claire Fox said a lot of truth in this, and she's in the House of Lords, she knows stuff, so I'm like, it must be good. 
And I said, politics is now everywhere except in our political parties. We're forced to know what Jed would think about economic policy, which was a real example. Meanwhile, the main parties offer no real choice and can't even enact their own policies due to the markets, the media, the civil service, blob, etc. And it's mad to me that we can't, our political parties can't do anything. And even if Suella wants to get rid of a few migrants to Rwanda, she can't because of the ECHR. And then the, the airline pulls out because of activist pressure, which is another pressure I haven't even mentioned. So we can't even have any any politics by our political parties. So it's absolutely absurd. I mean, that's another kind of coup, if you like, isn't it? But but yeah, I mean, I thought the most compelling argument against Boris wasn't even the markets. It was the, even though I was pro-Boris in this instance, because the people voted for him, but the privileges vote that Baker talks about, Steve Baker, basically saying that if he's proved to have misled Parliament, he'd be out by Christmas anyway. And they were terrified of another implosion. And that's what it seemed to me. And then you've got yes. all these people, and I was going to ask you about this, therefore going against Boris. And do, were you disappointed? Frost, Lord Frost, Kemi Badenoch, Suella Bradman, Steve Baker, all throwing Boris under the bus. And, and obviously you're a big Kemi fan, as we have been on this podcast. What did you think to that? Well, I think they were reading the rooms, unlike, you know, other people in the Conservative Party, in the Parliamentary Party. Um and I think they just they just concluded that um, well maybe I'm being a bit unfair if I say that it was for purely kind of mercenary careerist reasons. Um, I think they you know they 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 may have been concerned that uh, things would implode again under Boris. Um, they may have been disappointed by the way in which Boris governed. I think with Kemi, I think it would have been difficult for her uh, to support Boris, given that she was one of the ministers who resigned in that kind of cascade of resignations that prompted Boris's resignation eventually. Um, so, you know, I think it's difficult for for senior politicians who announce that they've lost faith in a political leader um, to suddenly change their minds about it without looking very careerist and mercenary. Um, I remember teasing Michael Gove at the Spectator Parliamentarian of the Year Award. So, I was seated at a table next to Michael and Andrew Neal was on the other side. And I think I was trying to impress Andrew. And um, and it was shortly after Boris had won his 80-seat majority in 2019 and Michael had returned to the cabinet, even though Michael had effectively said in 2016, torpedoed Boris's leadership bid by saying that psychologically Boris is just not fit to be prime minister. Um, and so I was sort of saying to Michael, so um, have you changed your mind or has Boris changed? And he was like, Boris has changed. Boris has changed. He's much more grown up now. And and it was clearly, it, it was, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe he was being sincere, um, but it was easy to kind of, you know, twist the knife and, and kind of, uh, uh, and kind of force him into a corner and and kind of tease him a bit about it. And Andrew Neil was enjoying it on the other side. Um, but you know, uh, we saw we saw an example of this of, of how foolish it can make you look um, with um, uh, so poor Jacob Rees Mogg oh. earlier today. So Jacob Rees Mogg, at, um, it, there was a sort of headline in the Telegraph um, saying, you know, Jacob Rees Mogg colon I no longer think Rishi Sunak is a socialist because he famously said Rishi was a socialist during the Liz Truss Rishi Sunak runoff, and um, and I would be in the interests of party unity, I would be prepared to serve um, in a Rishi Sunak government. Um, and then, like, what seemingly minutes later, 
um, he resigned as business secretary, which I thought was regrettable. I'm a big Jacob fan. Um, but um, <laughs> it was like, poor guy, you know, um, uh, abased himself at the feet of, of Rishi Sunak, um, uh, more or less apologised for having called him a socialist, only to then be sacked effectively um, from the cabinet, even though technically he resigned. It was embarrassing, that one. I was disappointed in Mog. I mean, Sahabi had a thing where he backed Boris, then 33 minutes later on Twitter, back to Rishi, and people sh- showed that he switched about five times, and, you know, the incredible switching of Zahawi over these last few months and weeks have been amazing. But Mog was disappointing. Yeah, he had explicitly said he couldn't possibly serve in the cabinet with Rishi. He said that at the time. So yes, what this article was so blatantly, and you just told me about it just before we went on air, but it was so blatantly a last-ditch attempt to say, actually, I could serve with him for party unity, and it would be, and he's not a socialist. I mean, it's so shameful. What would be the much more base thing for Mog to do? It would be to say, I'm forming my own party. It's called Mogmentum. Remember Mogmentum from a few years ago? It's yeah. the Mogmentum party, and I hope you'll all join. And its first policy is just deport Rishi or something like that. <laughs> that would have been the base thing to do. But it was shameful. It was a bit pathetic, wasn't yeah, it? And he could have had a career as um, your sidekick on Lotus Eaters. Um, yeah, that would have been um, great. Mogmentum. Yeah. yeah, well, you sort of wonder, is he now going to, now having kind of, given that, the, you know, his, his kind of apology didn't work, is he now going to do another piece for the, Telegram do another interview in which he said, you know, when I said Rishi wasn't a socialist, I meant it. He's not a socialist. He's a communist. You know, it'd be, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I expect he'll just keep stum for the time being. It, the other interesting thing is just, I know you've touched on what Rishi will be like as PM. Why was his speech so bad? He did this bizarre robotic speech. He came on and it looked like it had been directed by David Lynch because he came on Hello, I am your new prime minister. There was like a weird pause at the end, pure lynching. Then he wanders off. I thought it was so weird. I was like, it didn't have to be that weird. It was almost like trolling us how weird it was. And apparently it was to a room of only people that had voted for him and the members weren't in there and so on. And I thought it would have been funnier if he'd have sort of used the situation and owned it and said something like, we now need to seize this opportunity as I have seized power from my own party and stab inflation in the back. That would have been much more about do a backroom deal with the housing crisis. That would have been the more bold thing. But he said he just did this bizarre, I am the prime minister, support me. And then what, what wanders out the room like a robot. Absolutely. It, what did you think? Yeah, it was unusually robotic. Um, <laughs> I, 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 he seemed like he seemed slightly stunned as though he hadn't quite expected to become prime minister so quickly. Um, uh, it, it all happened so quickly. You know, I mean, when did Liz Truss resign? She resigned on Thursday. Yeah, we haven't even covered that on our last show because we did a show no, I don't think we did. No, it happened, and she happened was still in. Yeah, so she resigned on Thursday. Um, Graham Brady announced the rules of the new leadership contest on Friday. And by Monday, um, Rishi was the winner. And by Tuesday, he was prime minister. Like so a very maybe boring it was just Craig all happening. David song. Yeah. It's, like a, it's like a political <laughs> Craig David song. Sorry, carry on. Go on, let's sing it for me, Nick. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, I was going to for a second, and I suddenly backed out. I was like, this is a, feels like a trap. You're, the listeners, well, if listeners don't get that, Craig David had a song about it. I'm sure you got it. Um, but yeah, it's been incredibly quick. We haven't even spoken about trust. And, and I tried to watch, I didn't have time to watch her speech before. We can kind of imagine what it was like, but she did a speech, but I don't know what was in it. Do you know? You mean her leaving speech? Yes. No, I, ha- I didn't see it either. Because last um, one, she, I was thinking she, she maybe the reason very brief. Sorry, I was thinking maybe the reason um, Rishi was so uncomfortable um, when he gave his first speech, you know, as leader, um, was because the podium was the wrong height for him, 
I mean, you know, as, as a one wag put it on Twitter, um, we've gone from the shortest serving prime minister in British history to the shortest serving prime minister in British history. Um, uh, a reference, obviously, to Rishi's diminutive stature. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I imagine he's going to have to get the podium redesigned the podium that goes outside Downing Street because otherwise he'll be having to stand on tiptoes and we'll be kind of looking over the edge of it. Which really yeah. Not Unless he stands on a little box, a little, you maybe know, he could stand on a little box. Crate. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that. Yeah. Um, I, I have to say, you know, um, uh, I, I do think that, that Rishi is a positive role model for short men. Um, uh, and um, as, as a, as a bit of a short ass myself, I, I can't help but kind of warm to, this five foot seven. I don't think he is even quite five foot seven. I doubt um, it. And you know, also, Toby, just to interject, he is, he's not just small, he's miniature. He actually looks like he's in the distance. He looks like he's a different scale. Like if you, you imagine you're, you had That's a young true. kid and they're, they're playing with like a He-Man figure and an action force up back in the day. It's like, these are completely different universes. He looks like he's in a different universe to normal people. Yeah, he looks like he's been, you know, in the way we used to kind of um, put crisp packets in the oven as kids to create little <laughs> miniaturized crisp packets. No. Yeah, if you remember, did no, you do that? Maybe. <laughs> Before the internet. Um, but, uh, you know, what he really reminds me of. Do you, do you at least remember Spitting Image um, in its original incarnation? Of course. So they had, the, they had a kind of David Steele puppet and a David Owen puppet. And the David Owen puppet was kind of bigger in every way than the David Steele puppet. And that was the gag, you know, because it was supposed to be uh, an equal partnership jointly leading the Lib Dem, Liberal, whatever it was. Um, and uh, uh, But he looks like, he reminds me of the David Steele puppet. As you say, he's kind of been shrunk by 25%. And so everything is in proportion and perfectly formed. Um, but uh, I, I do, I do, honestly, I do, I do, I do like the fact that we have, you know, a prime minister of below average height as someone of below average height myself. Um, yeah, we don't have many role models. I mean, you know, the two Toms, Tom Cruise and Tom Hollander. Um, who else we got? We got, I think Frank Sinatra was maybe five foot seven. Um, but, you know, until recently, the, the, the best we could muster in contemporary politics was, um, you know, um, John Burko, who seemed to be the embodiment of small man syndrome. Yeah. So, you know, I can, my sons, you know, one or two of them may well end up being below average. I, I can now point to Rishi and say, look, you know, it didn't hold him back. And in politics, I think, being short is a disadvantage. I looked this up earlier. And um, if you look at all, I think it were 31 presidential elections in America between 1900 and 2020. And the average height difference between the winners and the losers was 1.2 inches. So um, mm. height is definitely an asset in politics. So Rishi's, you know, overcome that handicap, that disadvantage to Absolutely. become PM. Height fascism. I've got a whole routine about it in my comedy. And it's a real thing. Now I'm considerably taller than you, Toby. No offense, but I am still <laughs> I not the same that height. tall. No, how, I'm a bit how tall are you? Well, I'm five nine and a half. I know you claim oh, okay. to be five eight and a half, which I <laughs> I question, but I'm definitely taller. You than see, you, uh, but... why do you have to? Why do you have to add the and a half? Given that you are, I mean, if you're five, if, if five nine is average height, so because you know, it's just you, real, it's just there. I just want to. I just you know, I mean, I'm all about the truth at all costs. <laughs> but but Toby, I was about to sympathise with you because. As tall as I am, which is completely normal height, I, if I take a picture standing next to Leo Curse, I just get torrents of abuse on the internet for being small. For some reason, people think that's okay. Leo's freakishly tall. He's like a circus freak. He stands up very straight, and he's about seven foot. He literally is six foot five or six foot six. 
And people don't understand. They they go, oh, I didn't think Nick was that small. I'm not. Leo's just freakishly tall. If you even very tall people go, oh wow, Leo's weirdly like it's it's insane. Oh, that's a good point. I mean, I wonder if um, one of the reasons Rishi has fired some of the people, you know, that were in the Liz Trust cabinet, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, Simon Clark, is because they're quite tall and he doesn't want to look short when he stands next to them. I wonder if someone should do like the average height of Boris's cabinet compared to the average height of Rishi's cabinet to see if there's any difference once he's appointed everyone. Good I point. should be a newspaper editor. That would be a great story. It would. And also, Mog often wears that top hat and he's even taller then. And then, he, you know, when he wears that top hat, and it, not often, but he wears it sometimes. And if you think about it, Boris was also small, but he was strong and stocky and he wasn't miniature. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I learned today, um, Rishi is not going to be the shortest ever British prime minister, male British prime minister, uh, because because um, Churchill, apparently, was only about five foot five. Wow, I had no idea Churchill was five foot five. That's amazing. He seemed, his presence seems much bigger. But I suppose people were smaller yeah. back then, weren't they? The the only the last thing then, Toby, on and then we'll move on from the from all the Tory stuff, is that um, yes, he's got the disadvantage of uh, or the advantage of I don't know the victim card of height. I don't know how you'd put it, but has he got the card of being Asian? Nadia Whittam of of Labour has already taken away his Asian card. She says Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister isn't a win for Asian representation. He's a multi-millionaire who, as Chancellor, cut taxes on bank profits while overseeing the biggest drop in living standards since 1956. Black, white, or Asian, if you work for a living, he is not on your side. Essentially, it's that thing again. It's like, he can't be Asian because he's rich. Is that, is that, is that what she's saying? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I think that is what she's saying. He's only superficially Asian. Um, I think, uh, I think the, I mean, you, you, people have been kind of, you know, applauding the fact that we have our first prime minister of colour and it's a great kind of a great step forward. It shows how much progress we've made in the past hundred years um, and so on and so forth. But actually, I'm not sure, you know, how I, I'm not sure that it is this kind of great blow for the kind of equalities agenda, because the fact is that Indians aren't really, um, at least not in contemporary Britain, a beleaguered minority. Jess Phillips had an interesting take on that. She said, I'm glad I live in a country where an Asian Brit can rise to highest office. It's something to be proud of. Class issue remains greatest barrier, it would seem. Now, I, I also welcome the fact that race is no barrier to f- staging a coup and taking over the leadership. I think that's great. <laughs> but I sort of agree with Jess. You know, I was making the same point with Liz Truss. She was a, the first comprehensive school PM, unless you count Theresa May, which you don't. All right. Well, that's the Tories dealt with. Toby, I believe we've got a new advert. Yes, we do. We have a new sponsor this week. I think he's he's just trying um, uh, once. So this is a, a test. And if he gets a big response, he's going to advertise um, for the next six shows. So please do respond to this ad and you won't regret it. Weekly Skeptic listeners, meet Thor Holt. I know Thor personally. He's provided pro bono support to Free Speech Union members who've been targeted for cancellation, and he'd like to connect with you for encouragement and community. When Thor isn't supporting FSU members in the eye of a Twitter storm, he helps businesses through challenging times. For example, an SME facing 20% redundancies worked with Thor and within four months landed contracts worth £20.4 million, avoided redundancies and secured a 10-year project pipeline. What follows is a personal note from Thor for Weekly Skeptic listeners. Quote, 
In my experience, business has been a lonely place for freethinkers since 2016. A regrettable, if understandable, lack of individuals able to speak their minds on many issues, Brexit, climate, Trump, ESG, or whatever the current thing is. In 2022, coming out as a free thinker in the boardroom could be as risky as donning your Trump 2020 MAGA hat and heading down to a BLM rally. But let's focus on what we can still do. After all, even in these crazy days, there are deals to be done and business missions to deliver on. I'd love to hear from you, whether you're interested in my services or you just appreciate a coffee and some encouragement. Get in touch at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Thor Holt, that's T-H-O-R-H-O-L-T, or send me a telegram message at at Thor underscore Holt. All right, now let's go to Will Jones for our top stories of the week. Okay, so I'm here with Dr. Will Jones to give us the top stories of the week from the Daily Skeptic website. And first up, it's likely that mRNA vaccines played significant role in all unexplained heart attacks since 2021, unless proven otherwise. This comes from our friend Dr. Malhotra. That's right, Nick. Uh, incredible statement that uh, Dr. Asim Malhotra has made uh, this week. Uh, he's a, a renowned, well-known cardiologist, heart uh, specialist. So this is his specialist area. And he, uh, in an interview, uh, said that he's looked at the data, he's looked at the evidence, and in his considered opinion, that any heart failure, heart attacks, cardiac arrhythmas, uh, strokes, um, anything to do with the cardiovascular or um, cerebrovascular system, that's the brain, um, were anything like that should be assumed to be because of the mRNA vaccines, the COVID vaccines, um, until um, anything since 2021, unless proven other, until proven otherwise. So yeah, incredible thing for him to come out with. He's not the only one to have said that. Um, another cardiologist in America called uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch has said uh, something similar as well. And um, and it's really raising uh, raising the stakes really in the in the current the current question of, of the role of the vaccines in um, in the in the wave um, of deaths of cardiac deaths heart deaths that we've seen um, in the last eighteen months. Interesting. I wonder if um, it also explains Katy Perry's eye, but we don't have time to go into that. Um, this next story is quite disturbing. One in every five hundred small children are hospitalised by the Pfizer vaccine. Yep. So a study from Germany uh, followed up uh, lots of children who'd been um, vaccinated with the with the uh, Pfizer vaccine, and this study, which is uh, which followed them up, found that about one about one in seven hundred, one in eight hundred of the um, of those who'd been vaccinated actually needed to be hospital go to hospital and get medical attention from hospital because of the um, the vaccine. Uh, but if you actually look at the numbers, which is what we did on the Daily Skeptic, and then you see that um, that all of those were in where they had a higher dose. So if you just look at the if you just look at the ones with a higher dose, um, which is most of them, uh, then it actually goes up to uh, one in five hundred, which is um, or thereabouts. So that's uh, which is just an incredible number. I mean, it's. It's about 0.2%. Uh, that's a lot of that's a lot of children, small children. Of course, they're not getting any benefit really from the vaccines. Uh, the the risk of serious disease or death to a child of that age of, of COVID is minuscule, and that's even before they've uh, got natural immunity from being infected, which most of them are now. And so, 
Um, so they're just getting so little benefit from these vaccines. And yet we can see that, that even with the reduced doses, which children are given, they're not given the full adult doses, even with the reduced, uh, the reduced do- doses, um, they are still suffering a huge number of serious uh, injuries, adverse events. And some of them went on for weeks and months. That's what the, else the study also showed. Um, and uh, many of them uh, were, uh, were, were still ongoing after months. Yeah, and as you say, tragic because they, they didn't even need it. And on that subject, the CEO of Moderna has said that only the vulnerable need the booster. Imagine that. Yeah, so uh, this is uh, CEO of uh, of Moderna has uh, come out and said um, that uh, in his view, uh, the boosters should only be given to those who are uh, vulnerable. So a little bit of, uh, of rowing back on the universal coverage. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether whether countries heed that. We know that um, Norway and Denmark um, have, have already followed that. And the UK does not, does seem to not be uh, offering boosters to people below 50. So that, and I think um, that the Pfizer CEO has said something similar um, a few months ago as well. So it's it's good to hear them saying that. Okay. And on the topic of things that we already blatantly knew, but the world is waking up to, a study has suggested it's highly likely that COVID came from a lab. Yes, Nick, um, that's right. The, it's, it's made quite, quite, quite some waves, this study. So a group of uh, researchers uh, looked into the look deep into the genetic makeup of, of SARS-CoV-2, the virus, and they looked at for telltale signs that it was made um, in, in a lab. And uh, it was said that it wouldn't be possible to find it, but they, they looked at how, uh, the, the, uh, how evenly spaced uh, certain genetic features uh, were, and they compared it to other naturally occurring coronaviruses. And they found that in uh, naturally occurring coronaviruses, these, uh, these genetic characteristics were, were, were more sporadic. They weren't, they weren't evenly spaced. Uh, but in uh, in SARS-CoV-2, uh, that that's COVID-19 virus, they were suspiciously evenly spaced, and they crunched the numbers and they worked out the odds, and they said uh, this looks very much like this is highly likely to be a um, an engineered virus. Now, all the usual suspects have poured scorn on this and said that uh, it's a complete nonsense and rubbish, and used far worse words than that. But I don't think everyone is uh, is buying this because they they realise that these people are the ones who are uh, in the target of this implied allegation. So, so, so that it's, it's had a lot of pushback. So, there's, so there's now a, a big um, argument about whether how how valid these um, these results are. And of course, as non-specialists, it's very hard to adjudicate it. Uh, but it will be interesting to see whether it makes it through peer review and what comes of that. But the, uh, the, the authors have stood by their findings, and some specialists have certainly uh, backed up uh, what they've said. So it's another piece of evidence, but it hasn't been without controversy. And speaking of COVID definitely being made in a lab, Dr. Fauci has been ordered by a judge to testify under oath on social media censorship. Yeah, so uh, a judge has um, ordered that uh, Fauci, Dr. Anthony Fauci, um, who's the White House medical advisor, and um, and not just him, but um, uh, scores of other federal officials, they need uh, to testify under oath about their uh, role uh, that they 
you, they clearly have. You read the um, you read the uh, decision from the the order from the judge, and he he clearly believes and knows that they have done this, and which is why he's uh, requiring them to to do it. That they have been communicating um, in huge uh, huge amount with with social media companies and with online um, providers to uh, to to get them to censor individuals organizations media outlets that, that don't agree with the government narrative um and to suppress stories um that are that are contrary to that and this is this lawsuit is being brought in part by jay Bhattacharya and uh, martin kuldorf two of the authors of the uh, great barrington declaration which was a a statement of uh, of um, anti-lockdown statement from autumn 2020 um, who were uh, viciously uh, emails that came out showed that they were viciously suppressed by Dr. Fauci um, and his uh, coterie, and they have brought this. and The judge clearly agrees with them, and it is very good news. It'll be the first time that Fauci and the other federal officials have uh, been required to um, to testify under oath about this, and um, it will be very good to see uh, to see what comes of that. And uh, we hope that. Uh, this will go all the way, and because of course in America it is uh, completely against the Constitution for the federal government to uh, impinge on free speech, which is um, and engage in censorship, which is precisely what this is um, or appears to be, and so uh, it may go all the way. So that's hope. Okay, interesting to try and see him wriggle out of that one. So finally, I'm not massively across this story, but I believe the EU have unveiled some kind of evil lockdown mask winter plan. Yeah, so the EU released a, a document. It was the EU Commission, which is um, the EU executive, essentially their, essentially their government, although obviously in no way democratically elected, um, one of the big problems with the EU. Um, and, um, and they released this, this report and sent it to the EU Parliament, um, and it sets out their ongoing plan for this winter, um, it's specifically for this winter, but it's got it implies elements for the future, and it's and it recommits the EU in principle to lockdowns, and to mask mandates, and to vaccine passports, and um, and to and to all of that, all the restrictions. I mean, it does have a few you know words saying, oh, we'd rather not, and um, hopefully we'll avoid it. But um, but at the end of the day, it is most definitely commending the use of its vaccine passport and uh, reinforcing that these are the policy options for dealing with surges in cases um hospitalizations and it um and they uh, what's more it says not just for covid uh, but they say is also for flu and so this is where you can see that it's not just for this current emergency pandemic but it is they are they are bedding it in for uh, and so in principle for every every winter and and then it just to, to cap it all off it then emphatically uh, states it's uh, restates its commitment to a global pandemic treaty with the re- reinvigorated who and world health organization at the center uh, and for a legally binding treaty which um, you imagine uh, given the rest of the document will codify all of this nonsense um, authoritarian uh, nonsense into into international uh, law. So, yeah, something uh, so so all a, all a bit doomy and gloomy, and definitely something that needs to be opposed. Um, and but with the EU having such a democratic deficit, it's very hard to know how to do that. Yes, indeed. Well, sorry to end on that note of doom, but we thank you once again, Will, for your knowledge. We are humbled by your knowledge as ever, and we'll catch up again next week, no doubt. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. So let's move on and talk about the BBC. Always fun to have a pop at the BBC, but I do like to be very fair. 
I've defended the BBC on GB News and I've even taken time to do that and really painstakingly get it right. But in this case, I thought they got it absolutely wrong. So Martine Croxall has been suspended now because she was so gleeful, seemingly, about Boris Johnson pulling out of the race. When she heard the news, she said, am I allowed to be this gleeful? Well, I am. Then later, the guest made a joke about Boris, how he wanted to be world king and how he probably thinks he should win the American election. And she giggled again uncontrollably and said, oh, I'm probably not allowed to giggle due to some terrible impartiality rule. And you're like, well, yes. And um, I thought they got this terribly wrong. I know people at the BBC, they work hard behind the scenes to try and be impartial. They have very high standards. And these arrogant presenters, in my opinion, ruin it. We had Emily Maitlis, who we all knew was massively biased. She never actually giggled, though. And she had the status to not get suspended, whereas it hasn't gone so well for for old Croxall. But am I being too harsh, Toby? I don't think you are being too harsh. I mean, people have said to me, you know, why isn't the Free Speech Union... um, uh, coming to the aid of Martine Croxall. You know, she's she's been suspended from her job for saying something perfectly lawful. Um, why shouldn't she be able to express her feelings about Boris Johnson? I think that it's, it's the same issue actually came up. I had the same conversation with my son because um, the uh, lead striker for Wrexham United um, uh, was was banned from wearing football boots, which said F the Tories on them. And, um, you know, uh, Ryan Reynolds had given had liked them um, or liked a picture of him wearing them on Twitter. So it wasn't it wasn't a managerial and owner's decision. Um, but it, clearly it was a breach of the rules in the National League. Um, and um, and I think, you know, if you work for an organisation, if you play for a football club, if you're a member of an association where you're not supposed to express your political views um, and that's a kind of condition of working at that organisation and you've entered into a contract and agreed to abide by those rules, then I don't think it is a free speech issue. I think she should have stuck to the rules and not done it. That's exactly the point. The licence fee, if I didn't say it in my intro, that is it. It's all about the licence fee. Because the BBC extorts this money from the public, they have to be impartial. We don't do that on GB News. We, GB News, we have Ofcom regulating us. But even with that, even without extorting people with this license fee, I would still feel a responsibility to try and be objective, even though I'm sort of there as like, let's bring Nick on as a conservative for balance. We get the balance that way. I would still never just be openly, oh, it'd be clear if it was a joke if I was, but if I was on the BBC, I would certainly never be giggling about Boris. It's so weird how they hate Boris as well. It doesn't really make sense because he's, he's incredibly, he's a bit of a lib, especially the Carrie era Boris, but he's sort of just something winds up people up about him. Is it that he's Brexit? Do you know what I think it is? I think it's the same as with Trump. I think, the average normie person, let's say the average sort of normal person with kids, with a mortgage, just in, the, in a tough job, working hard, is just annoyed that Boris can get away with so much. Just like Trump, they're just annoyed that there's, there's this swashbuckling guy who just goes out with as many women as he wants. I'm using a euphemism, goes out with as many women as he wants and he just gets away with everything. And do you think that's what it is? Yeah, I think that's the root of it. I think that's why. And I think, yeah, I think there is this schism Um you know, in 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 the soul of um, Britain between roundheads and cavaliers. I don't think that civil war has ever really ended. Um, it's just become a cold war, um, and uh, there is still, you know, a, a puritanical class, probably half the population, um, who loathe and detest 
Boris fundamentally because he's a kind of standard bearer of the Cavaliers. Um, he's Benny Hill. He's um, Sid James. He's um, Falstaff. You know, he he can, as you say, get away with stuff. He has this kind of ribald sense of humor. He kind of cocks a snook at kind of the puritanical morality and the code which the puritans expect everyone to abide by um and 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 that's why they celebrated when he was defenestrated and why they threw up their arms in horror um when suddenly he looked as though he might come back and why you know presumably martin croxall giggled with relief when he pulled out pulled out early for the first time in his life a joke that many people have made um but you know even making that joke you you recognize that that's the character where he is you know he's he's uh, <laughs> he's got a lot of children uh, not all of them legitimate that's funny your explanation reminds me of an old tom Waits show that we're gonna have to go all the way back to the civil war and that's basically what you say <laughs> um so all right well that's croxall and uh, let's move on and do izard so eddie izard very controversial is he a woman? Is he definitely not a woman? Uh, and and so Eddie Izzard released this statement about this all women shortlist. I personally have never and have never been offered a place. Never, sorry, I've never asked and never been offered a place on an all women shortlist. This has been a position I've held since I joined the Labour Party in 1995. I've never changed my position on this. Never asked anyone to change the position for me. Now, in the two weeks since I've announced. I was running. I've been amazed by the wonderful reaction I've had from people across Sheffield of all different ages, faiths, backgrounds etc. We're building something special in Sheffield, blah, blah, blah. And basically then says that he's trans, but not on a woman list. So I knew my candidacy would be questioned by a few. I expected that. Debate is good and it's healthy in a democracy, but so are facts. I am trans, but I'm not seeking to be selected on an all-woman shortlist. So this has been very, very controversial. So Eddie Izzard wasn't really trans before, was just someone who dressed in women's clothes sometimes and had always just been open about that and everyone seemed fine with it. Now suddenly he's trans, but two things have happened. Rosie Duffield has said she will not call him a woman at any cost. And then Keir Starmer has said, uh, I'm not really answering. <laughs> Basically, as far as I can tell, Starmer has ducked the question in classic Starmer style, last I checked. Yeah, but I think the question he ducked wasn't, is Eddie Izzard a woman? But could Eddie Izzard be included on an all-woman's shortlist? That was the question he mm. ducked. Um, not surprising. Um, I, I, yeah, I, 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 I had a conversation with someone about this. I won't say who it was. I don't want to embarrass them. But um, the person I spoke to about it hadn't realized that Eddie Izzard now thought of himself as trans. I mean, she thought that Eddie Izzard just dressed up as a woman as part of his act, like Dick Emery, you know. Um, uh, it was just like or, or a kind of more, more conventional drag act. Um, she she hadn't grasped that, um, and I actually hadn't grasped it quite either. And I didn't think that it was just part of, it was like, you know, a prop he a was prop using act, yeah. for, to get laughs. Um, I knew that, you know, um, uh, off stage, he sometimes liked to dress as a woman. And I knew that he'd, you know, taken to, you know, appearing in public as a woman more and more often. But I hadn't realized he now identifies as a trans woman and i looked it up and he indeed does so i think from some at some point in 2020 he announced that um he was in fact not just a cross not a cross-dressing man anymore but a trans woman and had changed his preferred pronouns from he to she uh, so i guess we've been misgendering him for the past, <laughs> the yeah, past yeah. five minutes um I'm surprised uh, you missed sorry, that. that was a big Eddie. story yeah no I, I i hadn't grasped that um but um 
Yeah, uh, there is a difference, isn't there? Between it's odd, you know. Is he just is is he just been on a journey, um, whereby he's become, um, you know, um, more and more woman like, or, or or did he decide that he's always been trans but had never realised it, so he's been able to come out as the taboo has kind of lifted? I mean, slightly confusing. Or or, or, or the cynical explanation is he is he a comic who? like to cross-dress occasionally off stage has now discovered that actually that's a thing called being trans and is terribly fashionable. So in order to kind of revive his career or reinvent himself as a politician, um, he's decided to define himself as trans. I'm going but it's with an that odd, one. You're going with that one, but, but, and it doesn't, is the Labour Party ready for, um, you know, um, for her? Um, yeah. I mean, he, he's 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 contesting. She's contesting the seat in Sheffield. Um, I think uh, I think she is on the shortlist. I'm doing. I'm You're going with she now, Toby. You, you've fallen for it. She. This is a big I'm... problem. This is a big problem because the Mail have been doing this. The Daily Mail is getting more and more lefty, and um, they've started using she. The thing is with this, they do it all the time. When like Demi Lovato says it's a them, she's a them. Then they start doing these impossible sentences about they and them. And you're like, just stop it. And with Eddie Izzard, they're all writing <laughs> she already. So they've already capitulated to what is actually a contentious issue. So you're, you're alienating all the, the women who disagree with it and all the men who disagree with it, because many yeah. of us do. So they, they've already used language, which is already a capitulation. And the other thing is, Eddie Izzard was famously in the, was seen coming out of a women's, woman's toilet. So people have a huge problem with this. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Maybe we should carry on referring to her as him. Um, uh, well, I am, do you think? Yeah. Do you think? Yeah, do you think that? Um, I mean, I, I do you think that if you do use the preferred pronouns of a trans person, that you are tacitly endorsing um, gender identity ideology? You're essentially accepting that someone can change their sex. Um, as a result of simply identifying as a different sex to their natal sex, um, uh, or are you, are you are you just humouring them? Can you can you kind of retain your scepticism about people's ability to do that, but out of politeness and because you don't want to upset them, um, or because you don't want to get into a row about it with your <laughs> with yeah. your woke children? You could argue you're always capitulating by doing it, but I think certainly in cases like Eddie Izzard where. He just decides one day, now I'm a woman. And there was a, probably a difference between that and someone who really has gone through the whole thing and, and, and actually transitioned and it's been very difficult. And you sort of go, yeah, maybe I don't want to upset them, like you say. But there has to be a line when it's people like Ezzy are just going one day, yeah, I'm a woman now, everyone's going to change my pronouns. I think there may be a line there. But yeah, it, it, obviously it's, it's confusing. The NHS actually even said the other day that it's just a phase. They, they suddenly said that the obvious common sense that, transgender children which has massively gone up actually it's just a phase for many people and even using the pronouns things like that can encourage it so in that in that mm. case you're actually you could be helped pushing kids into this confusion by buying into the pronouns and name changing and dead naming and all that nonsense so that's another consideration are you actually de- endangering children by using pronouns yeah i think i think i think i'm slightly less hardline about this than you i think my my position is I don't think I don't think um, workplaces um, should encourage um, employees to declare their pronouns in their email signatures or on their name tags. I think that is effectively endorsing uh, gender identity ideology and siding 
with the trans rights activists against the gender critical feminists. Um, and obviously, I don't think that the NHS should call, you know, um, uh, nursing mothers, chest feeders, or the rest of it. Um, but I don't think that it's wrong to use the preferred gender pronouns of trans people in all circumstances. I think if it's entirely voluntary, if you want to do it out of politeness, um, uh, you know, I don't think that 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 means that you are kind of betraying your conscience or encouraging, you know, um, mentally disturbed children to kind of have irreversible surgical procedures. Right. I think that's that's stretching it a bit. I mean, you know, as as a, as a, as a free speech advocate, I I don't want to kind of um, I don't want to kind of roll out arguments about kind of slightly tenuous causal relationships between words and kind of catastrophic events. Um, That's often the argument after all made by the trans rights activists, that uh, if you don't call people by their preferred gender pronouns, um, they're going to self-harm and may in fact commit suicide. So, you know, what what, what do you want? You know, um, a dead son or a happy daughter is is the sort of argument they make when it comes Mm -hmm. to children who are transitioning in one direction. Anyway... Um, breaking news, Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Grant Shapps is no longer the Home Secretary, but Suella Braverman has been reappointed as the Home Secretary. I guess her reward um, for uh, endorsing Rishi at quite an early stage and not Boris, whom she endorsed in the previous election. Um, Oliver Dowden is back. Um, he's the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. And Grant Shapps has got, um, he's not out of the cabinet, he's not in the Home Office, but he's now the Business Secretary. So he's got um, Hmm. uh, Jacob's old job. And uh, Ben Wallace remains Defence Secretary. James Cleverly, this is interesting, remains Foreign Secretary. And um, Nadim Zahawi is Party Chairman, so no longer um, Duchy of Lancaster. Um, uh, that's interesting. So James Cleverly still foreign secretary. That people were speculating that Penny Mordaunt would get that job. So I mm. hope that doesn't mean Penny Mordaunt's going to get either education or culture. That would be an absolute disaster. People were also speculating she might get defence secretary, but um, uh, she's not going to get that either because Ben Wallace remains at defence. Good lord, that's that's alarming. The prospect of her becoming culture secretary. She is uh, she's the wokest member of the kind of uh, almost the workers member of the parliamentary conservative party well the positives would be what if kemi could become culture secretary i mean that would be pretty interesting but i'm not saying it'll happen no I, well the, we know that the the edu- education is going begging um uh, uh so um i hope kemi gets education um i don't want to see michelle Donnellan leave culture i think she's pretty good oh, okay um so education would be where i'd love to see kemi well, we don't really want Penny doing woke stuff anywhere, but maybe Rishi was just trying to go against that text message that Christopher Hope received, but it was the coup text message that just said, Rishi, PM, Hunt, Chancellor, Penny, Foreign Secretary, and it's a done deal. And he received it like over a mm. week ago now, and it turned out to be largely true. So maybe he just wants to avoid uh, playing into that and it'll give us <laughs> something else. But I was going to say, Grant Shapps, when he said he'd gone, I was like, well, that makes it a bit of a problem for the globalist coup is anti-Semitic theory. But then he's back at business secretary, so it's it's almost even worse. So I don't know. I don't know where we stand on that. Interesting that Suella's back. I mean, yeah, she was trying to get some actual stuff done on immigration. So that could be. Well, I don't. I'm not getting my hopes up for anything anymore with the Tories. But but it's interesting yeah. that he's done that. It may, maybe that is a source of hope because um, supposedly the reason she fell out or certainly the spin she put on it um, with Liz Truss is because she wanted to honour the Conservative 
manifesto pledge to reduce immigration, which hasn't happened obviously since 2019. Um, and um, maybe Rishi has said, "Yeah, I want you. I want you to do this job." And Rishi said during his um, penultimate leadership campaign, when he was up against Liz Truss, um, that he wanted to sort out immigration in his first hundred days. Um, he hasn't recommitted to doing that, but uh, perhaps he still does want to do that. And so it would make sense if he's... The one advantage that, he has the is he's that, reappointed Suella. The one advantage he has, him, he and Suella, is that they can talk about it without immediately be, being called racist. Suella may have gone a bit too far when she almost scuppered the Indian trade deal by saying that Indian immigrants overstay their welcome. It's like, okay, Suella, <laughs> we, we know you've got Indian heritage. We don't have to play your card that hard. You know, they can't get accused of being racist every 10 seconds for saying, let's be tough on immigration. Perhaps that will help. But like I say, I've given up all hope. So do you want to do our next story? And it also gives me a chance to come back on one point from the last story, because it's very much related. It's about another man, woman, trans scandal. Um, and I was just going to say to you that I've, I have said she and things like that on GB. I haven't been like just deliberately said he to be a dick. But there is a line. If, if a national newspaper is saying that Eddie Izzard, who hasn't really transitioned in any way, is a, is is a she immediately then they are making an ideological statement they're not just playing it down the middle like they might like to believe and this brings me to jordan gray this person who well i was the only person on headlines when we talked about this that didn't say the phrase her penis because i'm not prepared to say that phrase because it's absolutely absurd this is a trans person who played a keyboard on this channel four show for what it's called friday night live and uh and suddenly got naked at the end and and Played the keyboard with what's less with, with with their penis, his penis, certainly not her penis, and um, and it was pretty. It was all pretty appalling. I mean, the actual song itself, I, which I only listened to after I spoke about it on telly, annoyingly, was a sort of narcissistic, vicious tirade about "I'm better than you." Was a big lyric in it, and it didn't seem to be very ironic to me. It just seemed to be someone actually saying, "I actually am better than you. I can kind of do what I want. I've got breasts and a penis. No one can stop me." And I'm kind of a weird like manifestation of the current thinking and no one can really touch me. And I'd also add a couple of things before you reply, Toby, and say Jordan Gray actually posted on Twitter, woke up this morning to the smell of burning gammon and it's delicious. So racist comment about people's uh, skin color. And also said that he, she educates seven-year-olds at school, educates them, which I had some questions about what kind of education that was. And I had to say this on GB because I was on with Scott Kapura who was just saying, I think it's great. You know, he's a great, she's a great performer and blah, blah. And I was just going, yeah, but the seven-year-olds thing, Scott. And I think most of the nation had some questions about whether this should be on mainstream TV and and whether, and also whether it was misogynist. People like Helen Joyce said, this is misogyny. It's basically a sex crime on TV and idiots are applauding. What do you think? Yes. Well, I think um, so far, um, no one's reached out to the Free Speech Union to... Um, leap to Jordan's defence. Um, and Jordan, as far as I know, hasn't been censured in any way, apart from, you know, um, there's been a bit of a pile on, um, but he hasn't lost any jobs. Um, no one's suggesting, I don't think, that I don't think there's any risk that Channel 4 are going to pull it. It hasn't been broadcast yet. Is it being broadcast this Friday? Was that a preview? Is, it, is, it, is this the relaunch of Ben Elton's career? as a kind of comedy show host that I got some vague idea that the, the, the new Friday night live show is being launched this Friday. It's the first one. And they released this clip in order to generate publicity for it. So more people would tune in. 
Um, well, but it may be works. that it was last week. I'm not sure. Um, but um, uh, anyway, as far as I know, there's no suggestion that it's not going to be broadcast. But um, the reason I think the, fr- the Free Speech Union has an easy get out, um, even if he did suffer, you know, um, a, a loss of livelihood or something similar, um, which is that he broke the law. I think it's against the law to expose yourself um, like that, um, unless you're in a license in, in, in licensed premises of some kind. Um, uh, so that was um, I don't know if you'd describe it as a sex crime, but um, it was certainly it's certainly I think it's the it's a, it's a crime that could I think see you end up on the sex offenders register. Um, uh, you know, I mean, he, of course, he wasn't exposing himself to little girls on Hampstead Heath, um, at least <laughs> as we understand it. That's not what he means when he talks about educating seven year olds. Um, but um, nonetheless, I think I think it is I think it is a criminal offence. Um, uh, and for that reason, obviously, we wouldn't defend him because we only defend people who exercise their right to free speech or indeed freedom of expression within the law. Um, uh, so, but, but yeah, it was, I, I, I have to say, I didn't, I didn't much enjoy the clip or the song, but it was quite difficult to actually, um, hear what he was singing because so much of it was bleeped out. It was like listening to you <laughs> on Lotus Eaters embark on a kind of rant about the vaccines. Um, so I, it was so much of it was bleeped out. It was almost incomprehensible. But as you say, the, the bits that seeped through the one or two, um, non-expletives, um, uh, suggested that it was um, a, a pretty unsavoury song. And some people were saying there's some hypocrisy here because what about the response to Jerry Sadovitz, who also apparently got his penis out in his show? But of course, a few key differences. One, it wasn't on mainstream television. It was just at a, a live venue where you had to specifically pay to see the famously offensive Sadowitz. Two might be the very different response in the culture where Sadowitz did have free speech warriors defending him. He was sort of roundly condemned by the wokarati, to use Suella's word, whereas, of course, this has to be celebrated as a beautiful act, this Jordan Gray thing. So I think there's a couple of key differences there. Yes, and I think um, Jerry Sadowitz um, used a prosthetic penis, as I understand it. He didn't actually whip out his real penis. That might have been for self-esteem reasons. We don't know. (laughs) But that is a key difference as well. I I told my... um, my teenage sons, if I asked them if they'd seen this, you know, trans comic playing the piano with her penis, and um, and uh, and and they they looked at me agog and they thought, well, didn't that hurt? You know, mm. how big is his penis? They were sort of fascinated by the kind of mechanics of it. Um, but actually, when you watch it, it's 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 not. He doesn't actually, you know, play chopsticks with his penis. <laughs> he just kind of whacks you, you. He sort of picks it up with his hand and kind of whacks it onto one of the notes, and that's him. It's like it's it's not like Zelinsky. <laughs> Yes. You know, Zelensky is Chopin compared to him. Yes, you annoyed by the, <laughs> the lack of sort of uh, priapic virtuosity. You want to see was, uh, yeah. chopsticks. It would be more like a magic trick. You know, I'd, I'd actually pay to see someone <laughs> play a piano sonata with their penis. Uh, but that wasn't this. Okay, well, I think we've covered that. I mean, and now incredibly, I think we should do uh, everyone's favourite section. As if that wasn't peak woke enough, let's do peak woke. <laughs> All right, so I really don't know what to suggest for Peak Woke because that pretty much was my Peak Woke. But I have another couple of suggestions that aren't really as Peak Woke as that. There was a video, but I think I found out it was actually from a few years ago. But this was a video of people walking out and calling fascism 
because Heather Hying had said that men are taller on average than women. And it cut to all these sort of students just walking out and saying it's fascism. It was in America somewhere, obviously. And um, <laughs> I just thought that's the new fascism. And it reminded me weirdly of, of I fell out with a, 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 someone I'd known for many years because, well, first it was over masks because uh, he, I, I wasn't wearing the mask during the, the so-called pandemic. And, and I said that uh, he said that I deserved months of suffering and that I, I wish ill upon you for not wearing a mask. He, I, I sort of deserve to get COVID. And I managed to get over that, but then we managed to have an argument about upper body strength. And, and I said that men had higher upper body strength than women. And he called me an idiot repeatedly for about five minutes. And I, I said, on average, and he goes, oh, but he didn't say that. So I forgot to say the phrase on average, because I thought it was so glaringly obvious that I meant on average. If I say the sky is blue, you don't go, well, sometimes it's pink and start screaming at me. So this actually ended a friendship. And I just thought it was funny because the, the idea that men are taller than women on average is was, offensive. Was that was that Heather Haying's error? Did she not add the words on average? No, she did, did she, add the did word she, on average because she, oh, she did. Okay, smarter okay. and more clinical than me, and she did say <laughs> that. But that still wasn't enough, even if it was, even though it was on average. So it just reminded me that it's like this can you have to be really bonkers for that to trigger you. But these people That's are quite out a good there. One. And the other one I'd put forward is the Microsoft gay flag. Uh, they're not calling it that, I don't think. What's the LGBTQ plus billion flag thing? 40 different gay flags or something are represented. You can see I haven't quite done my usual level of research for this, but it's it's a spectator have it here. Microsoft unveils the latest pride flag. And this, it's a sort of weird sort of screensaver type looking thing that combines 40 different flags from LGBTQIA plus communities around the world, including abrosexual Ace fluxed a gender, ambi diet. What's ambi ambi amorous? Okay, androgynous. We know about that. and some other words I can't. Like, oh, demi fluids in there. So yes, this is this new flag to try and incorporate. Every it's almost impossible algorithm to try and incorporate. Every it's, is it, does it does it just clarify something for me, Nick? Is it just different genders incorporated on the flags, or is it also different sexual orientations? So is asexual thrown in there as well as agender? Exactly, or, yes. Why, am I talking about two two totally different No, flags? demisexual is in there. And um, we covered demisexual the other week when that Navy person claimed they couldn't commit assault because they were demisexual, which meant that they were barely sexual and they had to emotionally connect with someone to be sexual, which used to be called normal. But um, it's demisexual is in there. Gender queer is in there. Gender questioning is in there. So questions are in there. <laughs> Just thoughts and feelings are in there. Gray sexual, intersex, lesbian. I've heard of that one. Maverick. Isn't that a, a Western movie with Mel Gibson? Neutros, <laughs> neutro, choice, neutroix. Is that non-binary? Heard of that. Omnisexual. That's just like everything. Pangender, pansexual, polyamorous. That's posh cheating. Polysexual, transgender, we've covered. Trigender, two-spirit, progress, pride, queer, unlabeled, just everything. I love two-spirit. Whenever I hear two-spirit, I immediately recall that Stephen Nolan BBC documentary where he asked the editor of Pride, oh no, sorry, of Pink News, uh, what's, what is two-spirit? What's two-spirit? Just like this curious Northern Irish guy, and the guy had no idea. And he goes, <laughs> okay, well, I'll give you an easy one. He goes, what is gender queer? What is that? And the guy had no idea either. No idea. The, the editor of Pink News didn't know what it was. No one knows, but there's a flag of it. And Microsoft have done it, and it's got everything in there. That's I bet someone should talk quote. to the designer of the flag or, or ask Bill Gates when he's um, uh, on stage at the um, uh, Davos um, next February. Um, so, yeah, 
after after dinner we used to play this kind of family game together whereby we had to name uh different countries beginning with different letters of the alphabet so you start with a algeria etc um but now we've we've got a new version of that where we name where we come up with different genders and 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 it's all there are almost as many genders now as there are countries so it almost works just as well as an after-dinner game in the um i hope not too woke young household um but uh, sometimes people say well actually uh, the last time we played it i i said i think um asexual and that was that was ruled out of bounds because that was about someone's sexuality and not their gender and i was scoffed at for getting the two confused so you could have typical that. Under old this white flag, guy you mistake could you yeah. Okay. I'm going to point that out next time it comes up. Um, so I've got a couple for you. Um, so um, one is tonight, um, Helen Joyce, the author of Trans. So she's a a, a, a celebrated gender critical feminist, used to be the Britain editor of The Economist, has a PhD in mathematics from UCL, very clever woman. Um, we interviewed her on um, a speakeasy for the free speech union yeah i mentioned it before ago. it was her that said that jordan gray had committed a, a sex crime right that's right yeah um and um uh she she's due to speak at the invitation of um uh arif ahmed um who is a free speech warrior at cambridge also a professor of philosophy and a fellow of gombal and keys so he rented this room at gombal and keys uh where it's not going to be him but somebody else is going to interview Helen Joyce on stage, and then they're going to throw it open to questions. And everyone who disagrees with her has been invited to come along and have what will hopefully be an illuminating debate. Um, and um, and it was all done in a in a I think a, a very kind of constructive, high minded way. Um, both Helen Joyce and Arif Ahmed are great believers in free speech, open discussion and debate. That's what they think, you know, should happen at universities, controversially. Uh, anyway, um, uh, last week, the master and um, senior tutor of Gombal and Keys um, wrote a, a an email and sent it to every student at the college, uh, essentially denouncing Helen Joyce as someone whose views were hateful and would make um, trans members of their community feel less safe, um, saying that they were going to put various um, psychological support in place for those who felt triggered and upset by the fact that Helen Joyce was setting foot on college premises, and also said rather kind of pompously that they themselves wouldn't be attending this event, um, which I thought was pretty shocking. I suppose, you know, by now nothing should shock me, but um, for the, you know, two of the most senior academics at this Cambridge college to essentially side with the trans rights activists and just take it as read that anyone expressing gender critical views really was endangering the kind of psychological well-being and safety of um, trans students. And the, the really, you know, depressing thing about this development is that it, it, they don't even, they, they don't think of themselves as being on the side of the trans rights activists. They think of themselves as being in the middle. Um, but somehow um, uh, describing that somehow they think it's it, even if you're in the middle and you don't think of yourself as particularly woke or captured, it's nevertheless in their eyes okay to describe someone expressing you know gender critical views which 99% of the country believe in as hateful. 
Um, so it shows, you know, just the extent, the inroads that, um, you know, the, the, the woke mindset has made, even even into kind of, you know, even as far as quite reasonable, you know, moderate people are concerned. It's like they've captured the Liberal Democrats, not just the Labour Party. Um, so that was quite alarming. Anyway, that's due to take place tonight. And uh, no doubt it'll be disrupted by protesters and we'll read about it in tomorrow's papers. Um but uh, yeah, quite an alarming development, I thought. And my second peak woke is um, another university one. So um, I don't think this has been reported yet, but I was asked for a quote about it yesterday. So think of this as a scoop. York University um, has um, decided, as things stand, they have this email system whereby you get assigned when you join the university as a student, you get assigned an email address, uh, which is um, your initials followed by a number. Um, and um, uh, because lots of students, according to this is the rationale, they're changing it. So, so because so many students change their names, in particular, students who decide they're a different gender to the gender they were born with, and they change their names. Um, but it's very difficult, apparently, because of the way the email system is set up to change uh, somebody's email address once it's been assigned to them. It's, it's kind of like you have that email address for your entire career at York University. It cannot be changed. There's some kind of glitch, some kind of unsophisticated aspect to this email system. So instead, they're going to assign random, totally random letters um, to people from now on because they think that'll be more inclusive. But just imagine the kind of chaos this is going to cause. I mean, first of all, it won't be clear who the email is from because the email address will just be a collection of random letters. And secondly, I mean, they're going to spend all the, the poor people charged with administering this new email system are going to spend all their time answering queries from dopey students who've forgotten what their email addresses are, because it's quite hard to remember a collection of random letters instead of, you know, the letters which correspond to the first letters of your names. Anyway, it's just, I thought, the height of absurdity, almost like, you know, a parody of woke caption. But I think it's real. Very disappointing from York University. Um, I'm not sure what wins, Toby. I'm sort of perhaps biasedly leaning towards my flag as peak woke but i'm i'm not sure or does i'm not sure and then i'm not sure it's not clear this week what do you think yeah should we call it a draw we could call it a draw and in a way jordan gray wins the whole thing anyway i think jordan gray and wasn't jordan even gray in wins, peak yeah. woke so in a way we mm. both get weak poke i think we've uh i think we've i think we've nailed that i'd just like to maybe read a couple of reviews i thought it was I suddenly realise it's sort of absurd because you're already listening probably if you're writing a review. So why do you need the reviews? You're already here. You don't need to be told it's good. But they're sort of like letters. I see them as letters from the from the readers, now listeners in the modern age writing reviews. So Old Normal has said, rapidly becoming my favourite podcast. Gets better every week and it was good to start with. Excellent content, intelligent chat, lots of topics covered. And I love Peak Woke. This is the podcast everyone needs to hear. Urban Utred says, always a great listen. The cook and the comic converse on topical issues, always entertaining and always interesting. Sorry about that one, Toby. I think you must be the cook there by deduction. <laughs> the cook and the comic. That's what we should call it, uh, Nick. Yeah, name change yeah, I think I've, I've, I've lived up to my name by using, um, at least sometimes, Eddie Izzard's preferred gender pronouns. Yeah, yeah. And I've definitely, um, well, I, I'm, I can't be the cook this week. I'm more likely to get cancelled for my series of reactionary views. One more. There's one someone here, Alan GCW, perhaps says, "Wonderful podcasting, an excellent podcast, giving an oversight of the craziness of society, uplifting to know that there are others out there feeling the same way." And that's why I read that one because that's important to know that there's others out there 
we all know it's mad. There's more of us. Actually, there's more of us than them. So if we all speak up, we will eventually win this culture war. And uh, on that triumphant note, is there anything you'd like to add, Toby? Oh, just to, to, a little bit of breaking news. Um, Penny Mordaunt remains leader of the House of Commons. So um, she's not culture secretary. She's not education secretary. And she's uh, obviously not uh, defence secretary or foreign secretary. She's remaining where she is, which I think will be interpreted by her and her supporters as a bit of a snub. But I'm breathing a huge sigh of relief. Yeah. Keep her away from anything where she can actually change anything. Anything that matters. Yeah. yeah. Good move. Good move. All right. <laughs> and do you want to plug anything, Toby? Just um, please do, if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoy reading The Daily Skeptic, please do donate. If you donate just £5 a month, you then have commenting rights. And even if you can't afford that, every little helps. And we do depend on your donations to keep the site and the podcast alive. Yes. And if you happen to have some money somehow left over, despite the cost of living crisis, you could consider subscribing to nickdixon.substack.com for all my brilliant articles. And you can always subscribe for free if you can't pay anything. So, yeah, I hope you don't mind me plugging that. All right. So I think that is everything this week. And it was quite a bumper one. We went over a little bit, but, you know, it's all good content. And we'll see you again next week. See ya. See ya.